Good morning, church. Today's reading is Exodus 27. And if you're going to be following along with the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 67. Let us begin. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make the horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the, next, the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles on the two sides of the altar, when it's carried, you shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be silver. And the breadth of the court on its west side shall be hangings for 50 cubits, when 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on its front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side of the hangings shall be 15 cubits, and there are three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the courts there shall be screened 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and there and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filled with silver. The hooks shall be of silver, the bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and height 5 cubits, the hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All of the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all of the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light of the lamp 
may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it for evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever and observed throughout the generations by the people of Israel. The word of God. Well, if that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know (laughs) what does. Exodus 27. We've been in the book of Exodus now, traveling. You know, those first 14 chapters or so, they're super exciting. That's, that's where they make the movies and the TV shows and, and the stage performances and, and all of that. Plagues and, and, and Passover and Red Sea. And then we make it to the mountain and we park and we're there. I've said this before. They're there for a year. They're at the base of Mount Sinai for a year. It's, 57, it's the next 57 chapters of your Bible. Is them, it's the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and half of Numbers. They're sitting at the bottom of Mount Sinai. We've, we've labeled this from slavery to glory. And so even though when we're reading this and, and we're kind of like, okay, uh, there's a lot of details here, um, but this is the glory of God. It is to the glory of God that he prescribes how they worship. Let me ask you a question. When you walked into church this morning, what, what's the first thing you look for? What's the first thing you notice? Maybe if you, maybe if you got the email with the bulletin, you've already looked at the bulletin, maybe you grab a bulletin when you walk in, like the little, you know, like this is what we're gonna do, and so you look like, oh, what are we singing today? Will I know these songs? Will I like these songs? Maybe you look, oh, who's preaching? Oh, it's Brady. Oh. <laughs> Duncan, Duncan Brady, Duncan Brady. <laughs> what do I do? When the Israelites first walked into the tabernacle court, the tabernacle compound, the first thing they saw was an altar. A a seven-foot by seven-foot bronze altar with four large horns sticking up from the corners. And with the passing of time, this would be a smoke-filled, literally a bloody, gory mess of a place as they are slaughtering animals on it all day, all night. Its fire never goes out. The priests don't take a break. There's no, there's no chairs, there's no stools, it's round-the-clock sacrifices, blood after blood after blood. The gospel of the altar, that's what we're going to talk about today. The gospel of the altar, the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news of the altar. Let me ask you this question. On what basis do you dare to enter the presence of a holy God today? How dare you walk in here? How dare you sing songs to a holy God? How dare you passively sit there and listen to a sermon? 
How do you get away with that? On what basis are you allowing yourself to do this this morning? That's an important question, isn't it? And the answer is the altar. The altar, which, spoiler alert, is the cross. (laughs) The cross of Jesus Christ. God speaks to us in the Old Testament, God speaks to us in two words. He speaks to us in the word of law, and He speaks to us in the word of gospel. Law says, do this. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Gospel says, God does. God does it. At Sinai, first God spoke in law. Ten Commandments, the book of the law, and then, they, and then they confirmed the covenant back in chapter 24, and they, and they said, all that the Lord commands, we will do. We're going to do it. And then Moses alone went back on top of the mountain. So that's where we are here in chapter 7. Moses is on top of the mountain. The people are down below. So only Moses is hearing this. What Ron just read, only Moses is hearing this, and this is God giving them gospel, the the gospel of the tabernacle. Because here's what God knows. God knows they're not going to do it. They're not going to get it done. They're not going to obey me. They're going to need a tabernacle. They're going to need an altar. They're going to need an altar. So first God speaks in law, then God speaks in gospel. Gospel only makes sense. Grace only makes sense when it's put up against law. The law condemns me, but grace forgives me. The, The law says you didn't do it, but grace says Jesus did it. So we need to hear both words. Both words are important. We must never confuse them. We must never jumble them together. But we need to speak both, law and gospel. We only survive the law by the gospel. We only survive the Ten Commandments by the altar. David understood this. Here's Psalm 65, 500 years after Moses. Look at how David describes going into the tabernacle. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You, God, atone. David understood that even when he was bringing a sacrifice to the altar, he wasn't atoning for his own sins. God alone atones. That's, in a a sense, it's prophetic because what the book of Hebrews will say is those bulls and goats didn't actually do anything. God will atone through Jesus Christ. David understood that. David understood that. Do you understood that? Number one, two lessons today. Number one, we need an altar. 
Number two will be we have a better altar in Christ. Number one, we need an altar. We need an altar. In Exodus 27, God prescribes the building of a portable bronze altar. A portable, it's got the rings, it's got the poles, you can pick it up, it's hollow, it's light, they can carry it wherever they go. Why? Because wherever they go, they're going to take their sin with them. Some of you have learned this and figured this out about yourself. Some of you have not. Some of you think that you can escape yourself. A new setting, a new situation. No. Wherever you go, you go. You take your sin with you. You take your baggage with you. And I pray you take the cross with you. Altars have been around since as long as people have been around. They're implied in Genesis 4. They're stated in Genesis 8. Noah built altars. Job built altars. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob built altars. Every ancient culture, even into uh, modern times, we build altars. We've been building altars since the beginning. The altar that's described here in Exodus 27 is not unique. Altars in other cultures, other empires have been, uh, have been unearthed, and they look exactly like this one described in Exodus 27. So God is not describing something new to them, something different. He's saying, make one for me. You've probably, seen, you've probably seen them all over Egypt when you were there. Make one here. And you're going to take it with you. Why? Why altars? Because altars connect us to the divine and they cover up our sin. There's two reasons why people build altars. Because they connect us to the divine and they cover up our sin. We build altars because we are worshipers at heart. Because everyone on the planet is worshiping something, every person is building an altar. It might be parked in your garage. It might be in your bank. It might be your online presence, your social media. It, it, might, it might be how ripped you are. You got an altar. Why? Because we all need to connect to the divine. We all need to connect to God, even if that God is us. The original sin, uh, we want to be like God, Adam and Eve. And that's what mankind has been trying to do ever since, isn't it? What will make me like God? We don't say it that way, but what, what will give me the most control here? What will give me the most power? What will give me the most status? What will, or if you're more of a thinker, what will give me the most meaning in life? Why am I here? And so we build altars. Also, 
we build altars because we sin. We're guilty. We feel guilty. Subjectively, objectively, we are guilty, and we need absolution. And so we build altars. We do things to cover up the bad things that we do. If I, if I can raise these kids to grow up to be good, good humans, good people, that will cover up my mistakes. If I take this marriage class, it can cover up my bad marriage. Let me build an altar. I'll read 10,000 books on the subject, and then I'll be better at it. I want to talk about one of our biggest altars this morning, the altar of performance. We live in a culture that says, be the best. Not just do your best, but be the best. We love the best. Can any of you name a silver medalist? <laughs> right? <laughs> I can't. Michael Phelps. Well, that's only because he won 200 gold medals. <laughs> it's the only reason I know that guy's name. Second place is just first loser. Everything's a competition. Sports, cooking, singing. We don't watch TV shows about mediocre people. Here's a drama about a so-so detective who solves one-third of his cases. That's not what you're watching. Here's a lawyer who's got a eh, track record in court. Like, nobody's watching that. Hmm. We want the best. We want to see the best. We live vicariously through the best. The best athletes, the best entertainers, the best looking. We want to go to the best church, hear the best sermons, have the best ministries for our kids. We wear our Sunday best, and we're on our best behavior, aren't we? We are obsessed with achievement. We go to job interviews, and they ask the classic question, what's your biggest weakness? And we say, well, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. which is just a way to brag about yourself because <laughs> everybody wants to hire a perfectionist, <laughs> right? Nobody says, well, I'm super lazy <laughs> and I rarely get anything done. <laughs> Nobody says that. Why? Because it's built into us. Genesis 3, again, we want to be like God. Genesis 11, we want to make a name for ourselves by not only building an altar, by, but by making it a tower into heaven. Not just, not just a four-foot raised platform. Let's stretch this thing to the sky. Whew. And so we are stressed out. We're discontent. We know that this culture of being the best, of performance, we know all it can do is condemn us, and yet we worship it anyway. <clears throat> I recently read uh, Anne Helen Peterson's book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's, she's not a Christian, uh, but it's a, it's, 
basically a case study in how performancism has destroyed the millennial generation. So I was reading one of her blogs this past week, and she quotes some Pew research from last year, 2022, based on uh, 4,000 parents who were interviewed in America. The title of the results, Pew Research, the title of their results, The Anxious Style of American Parenting. The Anxious Style of American Parenting. I'm summarizing, I'm completely summarizing, but in a nutshell, 88% of parents find parenting to be tiresome and stressful. And some of you are saying, what about the other 12? (laughs) 12% lied. (laughs) 62% of parents say it is harder than they ever thought it would be. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. They didn't see this coming. Middle and upper class parents reported finding less enjoyment in parenting than lower income parents. In other words, the more money you made, the less fun you had as a parent, the less enjoyment you found in parenting, the more stressful it was. Here's Peterson's remarks. She says, I'd argue that middle-class parents are more likely to understand parenting as a performance, as an accumulation of activities and achievements instead of an essence, a posture, or a source of internal meaning and worth. As for why parenting as performance generally feels more stressful and less enjoyable, well, it's probably hollow. You can check all the boxes and still feel like something's missing. So you just keep adding more boxes and comparing your parenting to others, then adding more boxes to beat them. It's a similar phenomenon, I think, to buying a house and realizing, oh, wow, it's not enough to buy a house, even though you thought it was a hugely remodeling the house. Chronic dissatisfaction with our surroundings is misery-making. Kids aren't houses, but when you conceive of parenting as a game that's possible to win, you're more likely to find the entire experience unsatisfying. Take the word parenting out and put your word in. When you conceive of blank as a game that you can win, it will probably become unsatisfying. When you conceive of teaching as a game that you can win, I can be better than all these other teachers. When you conceive of, uh, of your marriage as a game that you can win, uh, your ministry as a game that you can win, I would imagine it will become unsatisfying. And if the world can diagnose us like this, <laughs> what the Bible's been saying all along. Why do we live this way? Why do we make everything a performance? Again, because it connects us to the divine, or at least we think it does. It scratches that God itch inside of us, and we use it to cover over our faults and failures. If people see me as a great pastor, 
then they'll overlook or they won't need to know about all my sinning that I did, all my faults, all my mistakes. But just like the bronze altar of the Old Testament, whose fire never went out, it always demanded another one. Burn offering every morning, burn offering every night, sin offerings throughout the day, peace offerings, fellowship offerings, non-stop, non-stop, slaughtering animal after animal after animal, blood after blood after blood. It didn't end. It, w- it, it couldn't be satisfied. The holiness of God couldn't be satisfied at that altar. And that's what your altar is doing to you. At what point you have to ask, how much is enough? How much is enough? This has even creeped into our Christian culture. I was in the, it was in the car the other day. Christian radio was on. Don't get me started. And this song was on, and I was kind of listening to it, and I was like, what am I hearing? I went home and I Googled it. It's a song called, What If? Here's the second verse. What if today is the only day I got? I don't want to waste it if it's my last shot. No regrets in the end. I want to know I got no what ifs. I'm running till the road runs out. I'm lighting it up right here, right now. No regrets in the end. I want to know I got no what ifs. See, I refuse to be a shoulda, woulda, coulda been. I can go back in time. I don't have a DeLorean. What I'm trying to say is I don't want to say these words again. What if? What if? Last I checked, this heart inside my chest is still beating. Well, I guess it's not too late. What if today is the only day I got? I don't want to waste it. It's my last shot. No regrets in the end. I want to know I got no what ifs. I'm going to dream a little bigger burn a little brighter, stand a little taller, closer to your fire, dig a little deeper, reach a little further, love a little harder, etc., etc., etc. And that's a Christian song. Christian, listen to me. Here's how you're going to have no regrets in the end. Attach all your hope to Jesus. That's the only answer. It's the only answer. If you're trying to live this sort of high anthropology where I can figure it out and I can do more and I can burn brighter and I don't want to live a meaningless life, that is an altar that will never be satisfied. You'll chase that your whole life. At some point, you have to say, how much is enough? When do I just fall at the feet of Jesus and say, say, save me? Number two, we have a better altar in the cross of Christ. We have a better altar in the cross of Christ. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. The author says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Stay with me. This is a little confusing. We'll we'll break it down. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. All right, let me break that down. He's talking about Day of Atonement. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement is described. Okay, so if this is the altar, everybody can see it? Use your imagination. (laughs) Here's the altar. Here's the tabernacle. Here's the tent. Holy places. Every other sacrifice all throughout the year would be done here on the bronze altar of Exodus 27. And then they would take the blood and they would spread it on the four horns. But on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, they would go outside the camp and they would kill the animal out there on an earthen altar. And then they would burn up the animal completely. Every other, every other sacrifice, they would eat. They would eat it. The fatty parts get burned up to God. The meat, the priests will eat or the people will eat. But not on Day of Atonement. On Day of Atonement, we kill it. We burn it all. We take the blood from it. We go past the bronze altar into the holy places and we put this blood on the mercy seat, holy of holies. One day a year, high priest only, bells on his tassels, rope on his ankle, you know, you've heard it all, and, he, and, he's, and he's putting that blood on the mercy seat. Okay, that's what, that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying that there is a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice that happened outside the gate. So what do we know about the death of Christ? Did Jesus die at the temple? No. He didn't die at the temple. Where did he die? Outside the city. They said the Romans did it and carry your cross and he carries it out and he goes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he is crucified outside the gate. And then Hebrews will describe how Christ presented his blood in the holy, holy, the holy, holy, holy place, heaven, before God. And listen to me, Christian. This is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. The cross is the altar of all altars. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are set free. Can you say praise God to that? <laughs> praise God. Now, what makes me holy? What makes me righteous? What gives my life meaning? My union with Christ. My shared life with Him. That through faith I've connected to Him. By His grace, through my faith, I am connected to Christ. Not a bronze altar. Not my performance. Not my good deeds. 
Not how smart I am, how good-looking I am, how wealthy I am, how well I parent, how many activities I line up for my kids, how many play dates, how many classes I take, how many books I've read, how many letters are after my name. None of that matters at the cross of Christ. We stand now free and able to repent, truly repent. As Martin Luther said, now we can repent not only of our bad deeds, but also our good deeds. Something that most, most of us as Christians haven't figured out how to do. Why? Because it's only through faith that we are made perfect and righteous. So what do we do? Where do we go? Therefore, verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Go past Go past the bronze altar. Get rid of the, the whole book of Hebrews is we don't need the bronze altar anymore. We don't need the continuing sacrifice. We don't need to stand up in front of God and say, well, I brought you this. Well, I brought you this. Well, I brought you this. No. Don't live at the bronze altar. Live at the cross. Go to him. Go to him. Christian, run to him every day. Run to the cross. Do not live your life at the bronze altar. Live your life at the cross. Live your life at finished, at done, not, not at keep doing, keep doing, day after day, week after week, month. The cross, I beg you to live there. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never run to Christ for, for forgiveness, maybe you're still saying, how, when I asked that question at the beginning, how on earth, how dare you think you can enter the presence of a holy God? What, on what basis will you enter the presence of a holy God? And if your answer is something like, well, I, I'm pretty good. Really? You think? Well, how good is good enough? Compared to perfect compared to no mistakes. How good do you got to be to live up to a perfection standard of God? Well, you got to be perfect, y'all. And last time I checked, nobody has done that. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Have you gone to Him? And listen, when we run to Jesus, now that next part of Exodus 27, the court, the courtyard... Now everyone is welcome at, in the courtyard. See, at, when we replace the bronze altar with the cross, what it says is all are welcome because the cross of Christ is the most unifying thing on the planet. It's the most unifying thing in history. Who needs the cross? Everybody. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Okay, tr listen to me. He didn't, he didn't do like cross light for the people that are mostly good. And then, and then he went to like medium cross for, you know, people that have had some struggle in their life and made some bad, really bad decisions, but they feel pretty bad about it. And then, and then there was like heavy-duty cross for Hitler and Osama, Charles Manson. Are you hearing me? 
One cross, one time, one death, one man for all of humanity. That is the most unifying thing ever. And so now, when we come into the court, the court, we come unified. See, when, when every other altar will divide us, whatever your altar is, what makes you righteous? What makes you worthy to be on this planet? Well, I homeschool my kids. What? What? Do you hear how dividing that is? Because now you're better than the people who put their kid in public school. Oh, well, I vote Republican. What? If that's your altar, if your politics is your altar, all that can ever do, if your politics is your righteousness, all that can ever do is divide us. If, you're, if you're, how you educate your kids is your altar, all that can ever do is divide us. Well, I'm woke. Well, I'm not woke. <laughs> what? All that can ever do is divide us. But if we all walk into this room and go through our daily life saying, all I got is the cross of Christ. I don't, I don't even know about all this other stuff. I don't even, I, I have, you know, I'm trying to make it, but at the end of the day, when I stand in front of God, I'm going to claim the cross. That's it. And when we all walk in together, that unifies us. It allows us to come in here and sing praises to God in one voice, doesn't it? All the flesh, all flesh will come. Psalm 65, verse 2. We already read it. Here it is again. Oh, you who hear prayer, that's God, to you shall all flesh come. Amen. Amen. Will you come to Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate altar. Jesus Christ, your cross, that's the altar. One and done. One and done. And now I can go out to you Every morning, every night, every second in between, I want to live my life at the foot of your cross where the ground is level, where my brothers and sisters join me, not judging our righteousness based on all these other earthly criteria, but judging our righteousness according to your own righteousness. The end, period, the end. God, I pray for that heart that's out here this morning who has may, maybe never walked outside the gate to the cross. Maybe they're still trying to bring the sacrifice of their good deeds or the sacrifice of their religion or the sacrifice of their nationality or the sacrifice of, of how much they give to charity or the sacrifice of how much better they are than um, their brother-in-law or whatever it might be, God. I pray that we would abandon and repent of all of those righteousnesses and claim only the righteousness that is found in Jesus. God, would you free our hearts today Free our hearts, make us humble, unify us. Because we know, as we're about to sing, we know that it was finished upon that cross. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. We pray this in your name. Amen.